Welcome back to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Today, we discuss a topic so ingrained in history, intrigue, mythology, politics, and general, some would say, disdain. But it's an interesting topic nonetheless. This specific topic covers Olympic performance, determining the sex of one's child, and impotence. As an example, in 540 BCE, the Indian surgeon Sushruta Samhita prescribed testicle eating as a cure for impotence, and the ancient Greeks attributed magical powers to testicles along the same lines as eating a brain made you more intelligent, or a heart gave you courage. You might see the reference to the Wizard of Oz in that, but it's true. And when determining the sex of an embryo, Anaxagoras, a a Greek theorist, had a theory on sexual differentiation. He believed that male offspring came from the semen of the right side of the body and females from the left. The Greeks used raw animal testicles to get a pre-Olympic Games boost. And I think you get the idea where I'm coming from. Mikey, we're talking about testicular cancer today. How are you? I am good, Josh. I love your combination of esoteric facts that are going to be really good to bring up at the next dinner conversation you have with your family. Yes, yes, but potentially no. (laughs) Ideally, just as people are starting to eat. That's it. But before we kick off, I would like to give a shout out to one of our other Listeners who sent us a lovely email the other week, Laurie Vrabel, excuse my pronunciation once again. This is a pharmacist who works in California. She's about to take her pharmacy board exams and we wish her all the best of luck. Thanks again for the lovely review. And always, Mikey, we love hearing from you guys. And please, please get in contact if you want to hear something. We are making this podcast for you and we want to know what you want us to yammer on about for an hour at a time. Not just testicles. Facts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, not just testicle facts. This is not called uh, testicles for the inquisitive mind. Anyway, <laughs> we should get off this very Freudian tract we've got going, Josh, and actually talk about the disease for which this episode is named, and that's testicular cancer. Testicular cancer is a slightly different cancer to many of those that we manage, see on a day-to-day basis. First off, it's a rare cancer. The last Australian statistics that are easily accessible are from 2018. And in that year, 858 men were diagnosed with testicular cancer. The other part of testicular cancer that sets it apart from most other solid organ malignancies is the survival rate. So in the same year, 2018, 1919 men died of germ cell tumors. The way I frequently describe testicular cancer to junior students and patients is in many ways it behaves more like a lymphoma than a solid organ malignancy. It affects young people, it frequently is caught early, and it is very, very curable even in the advanced stage. There is a 97% chance of surviving to five years with testicular cancer. Those are pretty good odds, Mikey. They are pretty good odds. Maybe you should have gone into hematology. Maybe we should have, but honestly, hematology scares me. <laughs> that's the that's the main reason that I didn't. The flip side as well is that if you are one of the very small minority who doesn't respond to initial treatment, then it becomes much more difficult, much like with lymphoma. Second and third line 
uh, treatments for testicular cancer, which we won't talk about in this episode, are very, very hard and of middling success rates, bringing things back down to earth for us jaded oncologists. The majority of testicular cancers are germ cell tumours. These represent 95%. And within this category of germ cell tumours, there are two main divisions, seminomas and non-seminomatous germ cell tumours or non-seminomas. Other testicular malignancies include sex cord cancers, Leydig or Sertoli cell cancers, gonadoblastomas and primary lymphoma. Very rarely, and I say this because if I've seen it once, a testicular mass or a mass uh, in and around the area of the uh, testicles or scrotum could be a metastasis from another primary cancer. That should be right at the bottom of your differential list for any patient presenting with a testicular mass. But coming back to those subtypes, pure seminomas are the more, relatively speaking, of course, benign of the two germ cell tumour sub, uh, subgroups. They are more likely to be confined to the testes with 80% of patients with seminoma being diagnosed at stage one, so disease confined to the testes. Non-seminomas, as the name suggests, are a kaleidoscope of, of varying histopathologies with very different characteristics. These include yolk sac tumours, embryonal carcinomas, teratomas, and the rare but very aggressive choriocarcinoma. In general, a non-seminoma will have a poorer prognosis than a pure seminoma of the equivalent stage. And speaking of staging, germ cell tumours are staged by a modified version of the TNM staging criteria. We still measure the size of the primary, the number and size of involved lymph nodes, and the presence or absence of metastases, but there is an extra criteria, which is termed S, which stands for tumour marker trajectory. And these markers are important for prognosis and must be taken after the initial orchidectomy. The range, I won't go into the nitty-gritty of it, it can, it's very easily searchable, but ranges from S0, where the tumour markers are within normal limits, to S3 with very elevated LDH, HCG, and AFP as appropriate to the tumour type. And Michael, if someone's you know, a layman person who's hearing about testicular cancer for the first time, when you say there's elevated tumour markers, that all sounds relatively bad post-orchidectomy, right? Yeah, and obviously all of this is relative. This is something that we're probably going to say multiple times throughout this episode, but relative to patients who have complete normalisation of their tumour markers after orchidectomy or even normal tumour markers prior to surgery, patients with elevated tumour markers after orchidectomy do tend to do worse overall. It's also noted like we've given tumour markers a lot of grief on this podcast, generally saying they're not worth the paper or the pixels that they take up. But this is another area where testicular cancer is the exception. So the tumour markers, as mentioned, are beta-HCG, alpha-fetoprotein or AFP, and the do-it-all tumour marker of lactate dehydrogenase or LDH. In terms of which ones are elevated which, don't worry if you have to look this up every single time. I have to as well. But in seminomas, the main tumour marker that is elevated is LDH. Beta-HCGs are elevated in less than 25% of cases. Non-seminomas are the opposite. 
beta rate CG, AFP, and LDH are all typically elevated to some degree. As always, the type of tumor marker and the degree of elevation is not enough to differentiate between the different types of testicular cancers. You need tissue, and that's where the orchidectomy comes in. So even if patients have metastatic disease at diagnosis, an orchidectomy is still recommended. The practical aspect of this is that testicular cancer usually affects young people who might be wanting to start a family. So make sure that you or your urology colleagues have discussed sperm banking. There is nothing worse than putting a young patient through surgery, chemo, less frequently radiotherapy these days, as Josh will talk about. There's nothing worse than putting a young man through all that and then finding that their fertility is affected only when they try to have children, which for some of these people might be 5, 10, 15 years after their diagnosis. The other wrinkle to testicular cancer, the last wrinkle, I will say, uh, before we jump into our two trials for this episode, is that it is a type of cancer that you are going to be much more aggressive in trying to cure. And this extends to surgical resection. So I'm sure you have, Josh, but I have seen many cases where patients will have residual disease after definitive chemotherapy, and we can say it is definitive curative chemotherapy. They might have a a lung mass or a cluster of lung metastases. These are things that you will strongly consider surgically resecting because the rates of cure are so high. So all in all, a very positive start to the episode. I don't know what to do with this, Josh. We're not usually such a positive podcast. No, we we really aren't. I think we have optimism, not so much positivity. Yes, that is a very good distinction to make. Do you want to talk about your study? I would love to talk about my own personal study. No, this is not my personal study, but this is the study I will be presenting, which is radiotherapy versus single-dose carboplatin in adjuvant treatment of stage 1 seminoma a randomized trial by RTD Oliver and Jay Hurwitz and apparently. Jay Hurwitz. apparently when I was in high school I published stuff no this was because pub- ladies and gentlemen he's just that good <laughs> no so this is from 2005 and for the 50 years preceding this trial orchidectomy followed by adjuvant irradi- irradiation of the pelvic and para-aortic nodes was the standard of care for stage 1 seminomas. Cure rates were phenomenally good, as Michael had already broken down for us, but there were limitations, including people get lost to follow-up. You know, these are young, healthy guys who will be like, I've got better things to do than sit in an oncology clinic room for hours waiting to see my specialist to be told everything is A-OK. There are, of course, toxicities from standard radiotherapy, including late non-germ cell tumor cancers and the cardiovascular risk. And so the question was, is a single dose of carboplatin non-inferior to irradiation, irrespective of dose? So the inclusion criteria had to have histologically confirmed seminoma germ cell tumors, with pathology PT1 to PT3. They excluded large ones, Michael, so PT4. They had to have clinical and radiological confirmation of stage 1 disease and a normal alpha-feta protein concentration before and after orchidectomy, and also a normal beta-HCG post-surgery. So the procedure included a single dose of high-dose carboplatin with an area under the curve, AUC of 7, or two potential dosing strategies for radiotherapy. So that's 30 gray in 15 fractions or 20 gray in 10 fractions. 
Assessment post-treatment included tumor marker assessment done every three months for a year, then every four months for another year, and then every six months with ongoing follow-up up until 10 years. Looking at the results, that's how quick we are in oncology for the inquisitive mind. Mostly, were in, Most patients were in their mid-30s. Up to 15% of each arm had an elevated beta-HCG prior to orchidectomy, and treatment compliance was 98% of both arms. Remember, carboplatin, you have a single dose. So 1,477 patients were recruited, 560 received the carboplatin, and 885 were divided into the 30-grade and 20-grade radiotherapy arms. When you look at the toxicities of the treatment, there was less thrombocytopenia in those with radiotherapy, 2 versus 12%, more dyspepsia in the radiotherapy, 17% versus 8%, and carboplatin had more toxicity at the 72-hour mark, but significantly less lethargy and ongoing toxicity later on in the treatment, including a higher rate of returning to work. The median follow-up for the first publication in 2005 was four years. Relapse-free survival was found to be 96.7% versus 97.7% at the two-year mark, favoring carboplatin marginally and at the three-year mark was 95.9 versus 94.8% at three years with a hazard ratio of 1.28. Not statistically significant, confirming the non-inferiority of radiotherapy to carboplatin. Of note, carboplatin had more frequent para-aortic node recurrence than radiotherapy and mediastinal supraclavicular relapse and pelvic node relapse was more common in radiotherapy than in chemotherapy. The more important and interesting point is for those that relapsed on either arm, so 32 patients relapsed on the irradiation arm, of which all of them got salvage therapy, and of those 32, 29 of them were still disease-free at the 1.5-year follow-up. So that's how good the survival is. For the carboplatin arm, there were 27 relapses, and salvage included either BEP, so Michael will talk more about that chemotherapy regimen, with some radiotherapy and everyone in either arm, so either the triplet chemotherapy, the doublet chemotherapy, or the radiotherapy were disease-free at the 1.8 years after recurrence. Of note, post-treatment complications that led to death for radiotherapy included lymphoma, two car accidents, and a gastric cancer, of which I suspect most of these were not due to the radiotherapy, and for the carboplatin deaths, cardiomyopathy and a gastric cancer. I've noted some discussion points before I hand over to Michael. This is a really, really nice trial because it essentially gives me the answer right at the front. What they found was the single dose of carboplatin at the four-year mark was effective as an adjuvant treatment for stage one seminoma. If you look at a further follow-up trial from 2011, which was ongoing follow-up for this patient cohort, they were followed up for 6.5 years. And again, the conclusion was that there was non-inferiority of the single-dose carboplatin versus radiotherapy in terms of relapse-free survival and established a statistically significant reduction in the medium-term risk of secondary germ cell tumors produced by this treatment. And the final discussion points include this. Toxicity, the risk of contralateral recurrence in the testicles was less, as I just mentioned, in the carboplatin dosing than in the radiotherapy, and actually was somewhat higher. I think there were 10 cases of recurrence in the contralateral tumor or new primary tumor versus two in the carboplatin dosing. So that, that's something to kind of consider as well. 
there's ongoing discussion points. Can you just observe, given that you have such high cure rates, both in the first line and the recurrence rates? The second thing is to talk about the toxicities and it's a risk versus benefit in this case. And the third thing is that if these people are very difficult to follow up and they occur recur late and present late, would it be worthwhile giving them carboplatin, which does reduce the risk of that recurrence in the first place? And Mikey, I think that's a, a summary. That's a very nice summary, Josh. A very nice summary of a very good trial. I do have one question, which is with the toxicity data that was in the version that you read, did they mention things like uh, retroperitoneal fibrosis in the radiotherapy arm? You know, it's really interesting. The article itself didn't go into the toxicities that much. Maybe it's in an appendix or a supplementary article, but definitely not. Yeah, because I think one thing that has been found in the years after this study came is that there is a fairly significant morbidity from retroperitoneal fibrosis, which is associated with radiotherapy. Remember, these are people who tend to have good risk cancers. They tend to be very eminently curable. And so if you are going to give them a therapy that puts them at risk of bowel obstructions, ureteric obstructions, retrograde ejaculation, such as uh, retroperitoneal fibrosis, then is that actually worth it? And I think that this study really does demonstrate that a single dose of carboplatin, yes, it's AUC7, yes, it's a really big dose, but remember these are predominantly young and fit people. So they are much more likely to be able to tolerate such a high dose. Is an alternative to adjuvant radiotherapy. And Josh, I don't know about you, I'd be interested to get your experience with this, but I've never seen adjuvant radiotherapy given for early stage germ cell tumours. Never, Michael. Very interesting as well. Again, 2005 trial, so at least almost 20 years more of experience in treating this. But all of my patients, we generally have the conversation, single dose carboplatin versus observation, and neither is particularly the wrong answer. Yeah, absolutely. So I think radiotherapy has gone the way of the dodo in this setting. One thing that we will also mention, because Josh brought it up in terms of observation and surveillance, there is a fantastic summary from the Australian and New Zealand Urogenital and Prostate Cancer Trials Group, or ANZUP, about the recommendations for surveillance, how often, when to do it, what investigations to order at each visit. We will include that in the episode description, but it is a very, very good summary and a very good resource to give to your patients. These are patients that are going to be seen intermittently. It is a bit of a stereotype that many of them don't comply with follow-up. So having a paper reminder is a good resource both for the clinician and for the patient. It's interesting you say it's a stereotype, Mikey. There's actually some data out there on testicular cancer, looking at loss to follow-up. It was from the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital here in Sydney, and they did actually find, again, small cohorts, that generally there was a high risk of loss to follow-up in the stats as well. And theories abound about why that is, many of them quite hilarious. But anyway, we won't go into that. My study, if I may, Josh, my study is going to be talking about the alternative to the alternative, that is the chemotherapy regimen known as BEP, bleomycin, atoposide, 
and cisplatin. It's not a direct comparison because if you're thinking about giving BEP, you're never going to consider carboplatin or radiotherapy. This is for patients with either high risk, high risk locally advanced or metastatic germ cell tumors. Now, this study is much more going to be focused on the actual dosing because prior to this, there was a fair amount of variability in how much of in how much chemotherapy these patients got. We're going to do a separate episode, a follow-up to this episode, because there are a number of very subtle quirks to who gets BEP, who doesn't, who gets observation, who gets three cycles of BEP, who gets four cycles of BEP, how do the tumor markers fit into this. It's all a little bit confusing, or more than a little bit, it's all quite confusing. And so we're going to devote an entire episode to that. So this study published in 2001 with updates from 2010 by the precursor of ANZUP, the Australian and New Zealand germ cell trials group, focuses more on how to give BEP rather than who to give it to. Interestingly, as Josh has mentioned, the standard of care for testicular cancer is a fairly old paradigm. So the current standard of care for localized localized non-seminoma germ cell tumors and advanced germ cell tumors of any type was actually reached in the 1980s. Prior to this, you had orchidectomy plus bleomycin and vinblastine. However, studies in the late 70s and early 80s confirmed that the addition of cisplatin, substitution of vinblastine with the newer etoposide, and a limited treatment course of three or four cycles, which were later found to be equivalent, refine the process to what we now know as the standard of care. However, at the time of this study's publication, there were substantial variations in the dosing and scheduling of the three components. And these are based on regimens developed independently in the United States and the United Kingdom. In brief, to summarize the differences, the US regimen, which uh, I will call regimen A, so that our United States so that our American listeners don't start singing uh, Hello to the 4th of July and our UK listeners don't start uh, bemoaning the result of the 1776 Declaration of Independence. Uh, so I'll call it Regimen A. Uh, has a far higher dose concentration given over three cycles, though an additional cycle may be added to the end if certain prerequisites are met, high-risk non-seminoma, Uh, such as uh, choriocarcinoma or tumour markers that just won't return to normal. Meanwhile, the UK regimen has a lower dose concentration and a lower overall dose delivery that is given over four cycles as standard, so lower dose that is stretched out, and I will call that regimen B. In addition, regimen A uses a five-day chemotherapy regimen, which can be found in the relevant EVIQ article, which we'll also link to the episode, giving cisplatin and etoposide over five days and bleomycin on day one, day eight, and day 15 for a three-week cycle. Uh, The UK regimen only uses uh, cisplatin on day one, bleomycin on day one, and etoposide from day one to three. So a shorter cycle, but over a longer period of time, again, at a lower dose. This study aimed to compare the relative efficacy of these two variations on the theme of BEP. The study enrolled 166 patients who had to have a confirmed germ cell tumour. It could be of any subtype, seminoma or non-seminoma. They had to have measurable disease or persistently elevated tumour markers. 
And initially, they used the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre criteria for prognostication. However, during the study's recruitment, the International Germ Cell Cancer Consensus Classification, or IGCCC, was published and ratified. And however, during recruitment in 1998, the International Germ Cell Cancer Consensus Classification or IGCCC, became more widely used by the international community, and so patients recruited after this were classified according to that classification. Stratification factors were the treating institution and the primary histology, seminoma versus non-seminoma. In terms of demographics, they were relatively well-balanced across both groups. Patients were randomised to receive either Regimen A or Regimen B in a one-to-one fashion, The demographics were relatively well-balanced across both groups. However, with the implementation of the IGCCC, a number of patients did have intermediate and poor risk disease when initially they were only meant to have good prognostic disease. Uh, There were more patients with uh, intermediate and poor risk disease in the Regimen B group. However, subsequent analysis of the results showed that this did not impact the study's conclusions. So let's talk about those results. A satisfactory response, which was defined as either a complete response after chemo, a complete resection after chemotherapy plus surgery, or a residually or residual disease with negative markers, that was only allowed in the seminoma group, was found in 87% of patients. However, and this is where my American War of Independence reference comes in, the overall survival was significantly better in patients assigned to Regimen A, or the United States Regimen. So once again, America is beating Britain. The eight-year survival was 92 versus 83% with a hazard ratio of 0.38 and a p-value of 0.037. Predictors of good survival were those with seminoma and those with good overall risk as per the IGCCC guidelines. Progression-free survival, interestingly, though not surprisingly, given the very high initial response rates, was numerically better in the Regiment A group. However, this did not reach statistical significance. In terms of treatment delivery, unsurprisingly, again, there were lower rates of dose delivery of bleomycin and etoposide in Regimen A compared to Regimen B. Of note, in Regimen A, 48% of patients had greater than 90% of the planned dose of bleomycin compared to 70% of those in Regimen B. However, the median dose delivered in Regimen A, remember this is the compressed higher intensity regimen, was higher compared to Regimen B. In terms of toxicity, Regimen B, interestingly, potentially because it's drawn over a longer period of time, had higher rates of hematological toxicity, nausea and vomiting. However, because of the higher dose of cisplatin, is my guess for this, Regimen A had higher rates of peripheral neuropathy and pulmonary toxicity as well as ototoxicity and nephrotoxicity. So the higher dose is coming to the fore with those increased side effects. In terms of uh, patient-reported quality of life, the data for this was available in 90% of patients. Again, that's that survival, that's that fantastic survival uh, data coming out, that 90% of patients are available 10 years, 8 years, 10 years later to provide quality of life uh, questionnaires. There were no differences between Regimen A and Regimen B. There was a little bit of fluctuation between the two groups. So higher mean scores leading higher mean scores indicating a lower quality of life were 
noted in regimen B for symptom-related scores, with the exception of paresthesia, with the exception of paresthesias. However, after the treatment was completed, there was no difference. So regimen B might be harder to get through in addition to being inferior in terms of survival, but after treatment is completed, as expected, things even out. So to conclude here, regimen A, the American quote-unquote regimen, is I think now the standard of care. It's certainly the standard that is used across Australia, which involves three cycles of higher intensity bleomycin, atopicide, and cisplatin. This was shown to be superior to the four cycles of the lower intensity BEP. It is difficult to unpack those findings. We can't really tell what it is about the higher intensity BEP, whether it's the uh, higher dose of bleomycin, the increased frequency of etoposide and cisplatin. We don't know why it's better, but we just know it's better. A limitation of this study was that there was lower survival than other studies that focused purely on good prognosis disease. However, this is probably because there are a significant number of patients, 28 in total, who were found to have intermediate or poor risk disease by the updated IgCCC criteria. But again, this did not demonstrate a significant impact on results. So the takeaway for this, and this might be a moot point because I've never seen this UK regimen used, but how you give bet, because it is a bit confusing, is bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin on day one, cisplatin and etoposide together from day one to day five, and bleomycin on day one, day eight, and day 15. And frequently, because of the hematological toxicity, you do have to give GCSF support in the form of filgrastin, and this is normally given on day six. But that is how we do it. And that is how we do a podcast. I think that's it. That's all we've got for today, Josh. It sounds like a bit like the Backstreet Boys, right? Isn't there a Backstreet Boys that that's how we do it? Or maybe it's NSYNC. A boy band, what Josh is saying is a boy band from the 1990s has said that that is how we do it. I think it's called This Is How We Do. That is the ground laid out for four testicular germ cell tumours. We've talked about carboplatin, which is used in a very narrow proportion of patients, those with grade one seminomas that are just too high risk to be surveyed uh, without any adjuvant treatment. And we've also talked about how to give the BEP regimen of bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin. But Josh, that leaves one major question, which is who do you give bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin to? Because there are, as mentioned, a lot of details, a lot of considerations to that particular question. And that's next week. And that's next week. We will also talk about what happens inevitably. Initial treatment fails. Thankfully, that is a much rarer occurrence in testicular cancer. But we will talk about VIP, which is a Mm. very important chemo. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, (laughs) Terrible. We keep going. Terrible, yes. Um, Which is a very important chemo for those patients who relapse in a non-resectable Uh, manner after initial treatment so we will see you next week and as the backstreet boys so famously said this is how we do it can't wait to see you bye bye thank you for listening to oncology for the inquisitive mind you'll find previous episodes on our website along with weekly posts resources and links to our twitter and linkedin pages check it out at inquisitiveonc.com That's inquisitiveonk.com.